0: Good night, live with
1: Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.
2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross, and I'm here with my co-host, Tamara Thorne. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit our websites at tamarathorne.com and alistaircross.com. You can also give our Haunted Nights Live page a like on Facebook, or visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our Twitter handle is at Thorn Cross. We'd like to give a special thanks to W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Tonight, we are talking to a very special guest, uh, the Shirley Jackson Award finalist, Tim Wagner. Who has published over 30 novels and three short story collections of dark fiction? He teaches creative writing at Sinclair Community College and in Seton Hill University's MFA in Writing Popular Fiction program. His most recent novels are The Way of All Flesh and Dream Stalkers. Uh, before we introduce him, here is my co host, Tamara Thorne, with an excerpt from Tim's Eat the Night.
0: All right she can't see anything at first but she can feel and what she feels is humidity so thick and heavy so oppressive that it's like a wet woolen blanket draped over her naked body its weight the palm of a giant hand pressing her toward the earth next she hears something a loud click followed by an electric humming sound and then noise blasts all around her it's so loud that it takes her a moment to recognize it as music Dissonant on the verge of being atonal, but with a driving beat that slices to the core of her being. A blade of sound that cuts more deeply and efficiently than one forged of metal ever could. Guitars, bass, drums, and then a voice. The words are sometimes growled screamed, whispered or shouted, but they're never simply spoken. Megar is too much of an artist for that. Gonna walk away from the light of day, roam among the darkest stars, find a place where nothing is right, When we get there, we're going to eat the night. Eat the night. Eat the night. Eat the night. Going to eat the night. Everything we thought we knew, meaningless, never true. Feast is famine, dark is light, forever hungry. Eat the night. Eat the night. Eat the night. Eat the night. We're going to eat the night her body sways to the beat her hips gyrating and the heat and humidity no longer feel so oppressive they're freeing purifying like she's on the inside of a furnace and the flames are burning away her imperfections erasing all the meaningless mundane part of her and there are so many of those aren't there she's being perfected made ready it's glorious she realizes then that the reason she can't see is that her eyes are closed so she opens them the light from the torches strikes her eyes first Several dozen of them ring the pavilion, sitting atop wooden poles driven into the ground. The light isn't comprised of yellows, reds, and oranges, but rather greens, blues, and whites. These strange flames give off no heat. It's cold fire and it's mesmerizing. Beyond the flames are dark silhouettes of Placidity's buildings, simple one story structures, the congregation assembled with the labor of their own hands and baptized with their sweat and sometimes their blood. Past the buildings are the larger silhouettes of trees, and above it all the stars, pinpoints of light clear and sharp like shards of sharp-edged glass. The pavilion is located in the exact center of placidity, and it consists of rows of plain wooden benches. They're too simple to be called pews, and covered by a roof held up with vertical beams placed at periodic intervals. It reminds her of the picnic shelter near her house when she was growing up, except this one is much larger. The congregation numbers over 300 strong and as huge as the shelter is, a number of people have to stand or sit on the ground. At the front of the pavilion is a platform upon which a pair of speakers rest. They're big damn things, each nearly six feet tall, and the music thunders from them making the entire platform vibrate. Off to the side is a table where Nathan sits before a reel-to-reel tape recorder and mixing board. Nathan always runs sound for Magar and he's very proud of his position in the congregation. No one is jealous of him though. Such emotions have no place in the congregation's hearts. Everyone's screaming along to the music now. Fists rays in the air, heads nodding in time to the beat. Eat the night, eat the night. Everyone is naked, men, women, children, young, old. Some are so excited that they're masturbating while others are clustered together in various configurations sucking furiously. No one pays them any mind. Tonight's a special night, the most special and everyone is free to celebrate it however they wish. Many of the congregation are drunk, many high, or both, and some bleed from a multitude of wounds, many of which are self-inflicted. She has done nothing to interfere with her senses, though. She doesn't begrudge her brothers' and sisters' choices, but she wishes to meet the moment with a clear mind as much, if not more, than a joyous heart. The song, once a top ten hit for Magar, is two-thirds of the way over before he arrives. She knows that he simply steps forward from the darkness behind the platform. But it appears that he emerges from it as if a line appears in the night to create an opening through which he slips the congregation goes wild when they see him laughing shouting crying calling out words of love and chanting the moment has come the moment has come Magar raises his hands above his head and the congregation falls immediately silent with the exception of those so caught up in their sexual exertions that they're unaware of anything going on around them Magar doesn't do or say anything, but those closest to the ones determined to finish their fucking fall upon him, pulling them apart, hitting and kicking them until their attention returns to the here and now. Those who aren't unconscious, that is. Magar continues to hold his hands high for several more measures. Then he lowers them slowly, and in response, Nathan decreases the music's volume until it cuts out completely. There's a soft kachuk as he presses the button to stop the tape. Magar shoots him a quick glare, and then he looks out upon the congregation and smiles. Magar isn't a particularly impressive-looking man. He's not tall, and he has something of a pot belly. He's in his 40s, and although he has a long ivory-white hair and full salt-and-pepper beard, his head is bald and covered with sweat. The greenish-blue light from the cold fire touches his touches make torches make his skin look like marble as if he's a statue come to life or perhaps a cartoon spirit painted in strange hues to suggest an unearthly appearance. Magar, the friendly ghost even though it's nighttime he wears a pair of aviator sunglasses and although the congregation stands before him naked he wears an oversized Hawaiian shirt cut off jeans and sandals. But despite his physical appearance or perhaps in an odd way, partially because of it, he exudes a magnetism that draws every eye toward him. And it's not because he's standing before a group of devoted followers. It happens to anyone in his presence, even those who hate him, especially them. She knows because she's been with Nagar since the beginning, and she's witnessed it happen time and again. The magnetism made him a star, and it made him a leader, and tonight it is going to make him a god, or at least the next best thing very nice okay. very nice all right
2: please welcome tim wagner are you there tim hello
1: i am thanks so much for having hi. me. <laughs> you're
2: hi you're welcome <laughs> i want to start off by saying this is so uh well worded you have a really firm or at least you seem to have a really firm command of the language my first question for you is do you ever struggle with that do you This reads so well, it doesn't sound like there is ever a point at which you get stumped and spend a lot of time trying to find the right word. And that may seem like a silly question, but does that happen to you?
1: Yeah, you know, it does. And it happens more often the older I get, because I think the the more you write, the more you're aware of so many possibilities and things you can do. And it actually in some ways makes it harder. But yeah, there are times when I'll be writing and I'll stop and I'll labor over a sentence or I'll write a few sentences past and then I'll stop and go back and change it. So that does happen. But in general I try to write or just kind of naturally, you know, try to write fast just yeah. to kind of capture that sort of energy.
2: Yeah, nice. Yeah, and I and you know, this is this is, you know, true of all your work. I was as I was saying, I years ago I happened upon your novel Darkness Wakes and it really that's one of my favorite all-time favorite oh, books you. i just loved it thank and, you. and i have to yeah you're welcome and i have to know where did you get that idea we'll get back to the other stuff but i have to know <laughs> <laughs> darkness <laughs> waits what what where what, did that idea come from
1: <laughs> well the i originally wrote a short story that called when god opens a the door that showed up in cemetery dance magazine that you know used a, used a, a similar kind of uh, the same kind of core premise, but I got the idea. And uh, my car was at the, I took my car to the shop, and um, uh, my, it was going to take a while for my for my first wife to come pick me up at the, and bring the kids and everything. So I wandered over to a uh, nearby strip mall where there was a video store and. I looked at the videos, back when there were video stores. Right. <laughs> you know, rent videos.
0: <laughs> and
1: and um, you know, I wandered around in there, didn't find anything, and it took forever for her to come. So I was wandering up and down the strip mall, and I happened to notice that in between two shops was just this door. And right. it was just a metal door, and it's probably, you know, some maintenance kind of thing. But it made me realize that there were doors that I'd seen like this, and, you know, little shopping centers or other places are really kind of all over that are unmarked, yeah. and you don't really know what's behind them. And this door, somebody had tried to scratch the word fuck into the door, and <laughs> but they only got f u c, and then like it looked like an L. It looked like fuck
2: right.
1: Like and the fuck-le it, it door, just, I remember. Me as, yeah, and it struck me as so odd. That I thought, well, there's got to be something weird and sinister going on behind that door. So that's and you know, was. and that's where the core <laughs> of the idea came from. You know, and I also had heard that, and I don't know if it's true because I am I'm so not a man of the world when it comes to this kind of stuff. But you know, I've heard that there are sex clubs and places where they're just not, there's no signs or anything, so there could be yeah. a door. You know and that's the place where you might go and people in the know would know where to go but everybody else you know there might be like uh i don't know a yogurt store store and everybody's going to the yogurt place and they don't <laughs> know you know they don't know what's there and so those, well, you know, those two ideas kind of came together
2: nice the well form, just so you, form, know, you know whenever nice well just so you know whenever i get the chance if i have a sharp object and there's a metal door to this day, I type the off." <laughs>
0: awesome. <laughs> there you
2: teasing. go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that book. Loved it. All right. Well, thank you Let's, so much. You are very welcome. Let's go to the very, very beginning of all of this. When did you first start writing, and when did you first get published?
1: Well, you know, I've, I've always – like so many writers I've talked to, I've always – come up with stories, whether they were, you know, stories that I would kind of invent, you know, with the action figures I would play with. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes these things would be like epics that would go on for days or weeks You know, in, the, in yeah. the history of these characters. Um, the first thing I remember consciously trying to produce as a book is I had I'd never seen the movie, but I had seen in monster magazines that there was a movie where King Kong fought Godzilla and I was fascinated by this idea. So I took an old stenographer's pad and I tried to draw like kind of a comic version of King Kong versus Godzilla, but it was, right. I was consciously trying <laughs> to make a book. And I don't know when that was. I might've been five. I might've been eight. It was somewhere around in there. Um, as I got older. Um, I, uh, I used to read a bunch when I was little and then somewhere along, like, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade. I didn't read as much, watched a lot of TV. It's a good thing. There weren't video games or the internet back or I might never came, come back to reading. And then about, uh, when I was in, um, sixth grade or so, I started reading comics, and I wanted to be a comic book artist, and so what I did was I started writing and drawing my own comic book, but I wrote it just to have something to draw, and right. I used to, you know, would feature right. myself and my friends as superheroes, and back then the six million dollar <laughs> man was on TV, and so we were all like bionic superheroes like that,
0: <laughs> you know, we've been in a
1: roller coaster action at an amusement park, and it, it, instead of just like, you know, fixing up as best they could, they of course gave us bionic limbs and everything. Right. And uh, but I used to get mad at my friends because they kept calling me the writer, and I was like, I'm not the writer of this thing. I'm the artist. I'm just writing it because I need something to draw.
0: <laughs> but you know, as the
1: years you know went by, you know, I realized that um, it took me longer to draw something than it did to express it with words, and then there were ways that I could express things with words that I couldn't do in art. And I just became more and more interested in stories, and then I shifted over. You know, also, once I hit high school, I shifted over from reading comics, still read comics, but I also started reading tons of books. And so I just kind of started shifting over to that. And then when I was 18, a little before 18, I read an interview with Stephen King in an old Dracula Lives comic book that, uh, black and white magazine that Marvel used to put out. And this was back when he had just published The Shining, so he was not super famous yet. You could find interviews with him in places like this. And reading it, it was the first time I realized that a human being could decide to become a writer. You know, like you could decide to become a doctor or something. Right, It just right. never uh-huh. occurred to me. And so, you know, at that moment is when I started thinking about it. And then once I uh, got into college, I started work, you know, seriously pursuing writing. You know, I, I, I did it as a goal at that point. I guess I really, you know, started writing and submitting short stories around that time. Terrible, terrible things that never got published, but, you know, I was 18. I didn't care. I was just <laughs> yeah. so happy to write, you know. <laughs> right. Myself. Yeah.
0: But do, you, do you ever draw now still, or have you given it up? No,
1: not, not very often. I mean, I still can draw some of the little characters and things that I had invented, uh, mm-hmm. you know, back then. And uh, one time I did a reading my oldest daughter's 20 now, but I did a reading for like her second or third grade class of, a, a, you know, a story that was appropriate for their age group. And I made the mistake of like showing them I could draw a dragon. And then suddenly, it was, it was like instead of autographs, I had to draw dragons <laughs> for all these kids. So, it was really fun. It was cool. But, it was yeah. like, you know, I had to do so many so fast before they had to leave. to leave. But, it's a lot of nice to draw, anything. but not, not much. I really don't. I just don't do that much. Uh, of it. Nice. So,
0: so why horror? And it looks like you do a lot of science fiction and some fantasy mm. too. But yeah. why horror? What's the attraction? Um, you know,
1: I really—it's something I've, I've I've enjoyed forever. It just stimulates my imagination in ways that other things don't. And I'm not really sure why. I mean, you know, the the fantasy and science fiction can obviously stimulate imagination in any kind of work of fiction or work of art can stimulate your imagination. But there's just something about the mystery of what's in the dark and something about, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's, you know, real dark or metaphorical dark, but there's something also about this idea that, that when it comes to like horror and it it, it might not be like, um, like realistic horror, like if it's just like a suspense story about a serial killer, but this idea that reality is different than you think it is, which I think is pretty scary. you know you think you know how things work and you think you know how things are and you can do that with like a crime story can still do that too because you think your life is okay Uh and then some kind of crime element comes into it and shatters it you know you're at the bank and a bank robbery happens but there's just something about you know just the weird or the supernatural that uh, or just very strange and twisted that's beyond the norm that you know it seems to like to violate reality and just kind of really knock you off your pins. so I find that it really stimulates my imagination
2: excellent do you so you have you've been at this a long time i have a question for you who mm-hmm. is the most exciting person you've met
1: the most exciting person yeah like it could be anybody it doesn't
2: yeah yeah it be anybody,
1: anybody yeah. doesn't have to yeah i have i have to say my current wife of course
2: nice, <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> nice. No,
1: but, but it is but it is you know i've never thought about it but no she's like She's like a a literal genius and knows just about everything. The only thing she can't do is play music because she's never tried. Um, uh-huh. and, you know, she's like any class you would take in college. The professor would take her aside and say, "You really should major in. See, this. this should be your career." And you know, uh-huh. so she's had a terrible time trying to figure out what to specialize in because she can do anything.
0: And so I <laughs> just you know
1: oh. she I just find her you know.
2: The I woes mean, of being multi-talented.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in terms of, but in terms of other, you know, interesting people I've met, Harlan Ellison's pretty interesting. I like I've oh, met him. He's oh. just like a, he's a, force in nature. You know, I oh. find people that are like that, bigger than life, people that are forces mm-hmm. in nature, really, really interesting. Because I'm just not like he
0: that. In, he invited Doug Clegg and I to his house once after a book signing we did. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that fun? I, I sort yeah, of idolized that. him, you know, when I was a teenager. So it was. Yeah, he's, he's another force of nature.
2: <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> Very nice. And you also teach, you also teach college, correct? Yeah.
1: Yeah. How does, it, how you... You... go
2: ahead. Oh no, so I was just, I'm just curious how you divide your time.
1: Well, you know, it's a really good job for a writer and it's a really, and I, I, I have never been diagnosed, but I sometimes suspect I have like, ADD or adult ADD, because the idea of like sitting for eight hours in one place, kind of focusing on one thing, drives me insane. And so teaching is great because, you know, I have one class and I can go to another class. You know, even if it's the same class, I have a different group of people. There's a little break in between when I go, I go from a different room to another. Um, But, you know, I have a variety of classes and I don't have them necessarily all day long. So I have gaps in my day where, you know, I get a chance to sit and write. Um, and that seems to work out pretty well. It also helps that I'm I, person that does a lot of internal composing, like in my head, so that right. while I'm walking around or driving or waiting for my students to do an exercise, there's still work going on in my head. So when it comes time to sit down and write, it's kind of like in martial arts where they tell you to visualize or sports. They tell you to visualize what your body's going to do, and then your body doesn't. Right. I sort of visualize what yeah. I'm or, or going to write, even the words and sentences sometimes. So... The actual writing seems to happen fast once I sit down through a lot of people, but the process is going on all the time. But those breaks really help a lot, and plus, you know, the grading waxes yeah. and waits too, so that helps. Okay. Right, right.
0: I I have been diagnosed as ADD, and I, I've lectured on it and all kinds of things. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you, creativity is ADD. I mean, ADD is just mm-hmm. the name people give us because we can't concentrate on anything boring for long. And right. I never, I could never hold a job for long. Once I learned that that was it, I was just Fast asleep, and so writing is great because every every book is a new job. That's right. And, but I yeah. I don't think it's a condition. I think it's creativity, and that's obviously. But, uh, well, I
2: what like I that. what I think is interesting about it. What I think is interesting about it is I was. I think two or three two or three times in my life I've been diagnosed as ADD. Yeah. And of course, then they put me on medication and that just freaks me out. And so they're like, oh, apparently you're not because yeah. you're reacting very badly. <laughs> um, but the thing yeah. is, the, the thing that always struck me interesting about the ADD is it's like, no, I couldn't concentrate on history. I couldn't concentrate on math. I couldn't. But you know what? Put me in front of a good book. Put me in front of a really exciting movie. Put me in front of some good music. And I mean, hours would pass. I'm like, how do, how is yeah. that ADD? I can focus. It's just selective. I can't focus it's, on just anything. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and thank God for that. <laughs> I, I,
0: yeah, I couldn't do that either. You just, you, I read, I think I was 18, right out of high school, I read Burr by Gore Vidal. First time I ever thought history was interesting, and I just sucked it all up. It's mm. It's all about making it interesting.
1: Yeah, I think it's about how, having yeah. it having it on different levels too because you know when you read a novel mm-hmm. there are so many levels to it or watch a movie or you know yeah. read a historical novel but when somebody's trying to present you like one thing after another in a very simplified linear fashion uh, it, you know yeah. there's, just, the, the, there's so much of your mind it's not doing anything this well,
0: and it's true
2: and it's it's really interesting because and this has been true since i was a little kid i could i cannot sit through a movie I'm I'm a little better now that I'm older, but I cannot sit through a movie unless people are exploding and 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 <laughs> dying and, and blood is splattering. But but I had no problem, and I mean this, I had no problem sitting down and reading Gone with the Wind. Hmm. Explain that. I mean, you know what I mean? And I liked yeah. it. I was just fully totally engaged the whole time. It's crazy. So I don't know if it's it's ADD or what, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, we are talking to Tim Wagner, Shirley Jackson Award finalist thank you for listening and be sure to give us a like and thank you for tuning in our upcoming guests on haunted nights live include edward urdelack robert micello jonathan mayberry and christopher moore uh, our next show will be featuring charlene harris and later on uh in the year we have uh, uh diana love uh also in thorn and cross news our haunted hotel novel the cliff house haunting is available on amazon and so is our eighth installment of the Ghost of Ravencrest titled Spellbound. Spellbound wraps up volume one of the Ravencrest saga, which is titled The Ghost of Ravencrest. The next volume will begin immediately. Uh, And and Ghost of Ravencrest is a serialized Gothic. It's in the vein of Dark Shadows, Rebecca, and we do new installments about every four to six weeks. Um, And then at last, my debut solo novel, a vampire tale titled The Crimson Corset is Currently at the very tail end of production, from what I hear, and expected to be released within days—like tomorrow, maybe the next day—I don't know because I don't pay attention. But very, very soon, Uh, days—you can you can learn more about our work. Very excited, yeah. Yes, (laughs) very soon you can learn more about our work and us at uh, our websites. Mine is alistacross.com, and Tamara's, of course, is tamrathorn.com. Okay, Tim Wagner.
0: Alistair. Wait a minute, Alistair. Everybody should tune in to the podcast from last week's show where I interviewed you and we did a lot of dramatic readings from our stuff, yours and ours. Oh, yes.
2: Yes. We had a good time. (laughs) We had a good time last week on our own show because I am going through uh, this, 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 the Crimson Corset is coming out. So um, i'm getting set up with a lot of interviews and reviews and all this stuff and um i thought hey why not be a guest on my own show so i was and really? <laughs> we had a yeah. good time we did really bad dramatic readings we should oh, not be horrible. actors which we knew beforehand no. but it was we a good time no so mm-hmm. no we have no shame yeah. so next so <laughs> if, you, if you have an hour to kill Go check out our show from last week. <laughs> yes. uh, you can see our guest list on our websites, by the way, and we also have a guest list uh, at authorsontheair.com under uh, Thorn and Cross Hundred Nights Live. They have different shows for the, um, and, and each show has their own set of guests. And anyway, so Tim Wagner, um, you, this is very very exciting to me. I I, I love this. You have written for Supernatural. Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. Stargate, all kinds of good stuff. The first thing I want to ask you about this, I want to talk about this, but the first thing I, I want to ask you about is when you're handling, when you're, when you're writing something like Sam and Dean Winchester, my thinking would be this would be a very, very stressful thing to do. I, I would imagine that there'd be a lot of self-imposed pressure, you know, and maybe oh, even external
0: Bible. Pressure the bible exactly exactly
2: i i'm wondering how you can take two beloved super popular already fully developed characters like sam and dean winchester and and write them how do you how does that happen how how does that feel
1: well you know i try not to think about all the people (laughs) Yeah. that are, uh, you know, that are <laughs> out there. Because, you know, one of the things that, that I realized early on when I was writing Katayans is that everybody, I mean, there is no Sam and Dean. There's a million of them because everybody interprets them a little bit differently. And oh. so when, yeah. you, when you write your own, you know, you write a book, you know, you hope that, you know, you're going to be able to find enough common ground with all these people that they'll enjoy it. But there's always going to be people that are like, that's not Sam and Dean. Sam and Dean would would never do this, so they would never do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I try not to think about that because I'd be paralyzed. And since the next project I have to do is another supernatural novel, and I need to start it like immediately, um, I don't really want to think. (laughs) 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 Just waiting for me to... to uh, to mess up but you know in a lot of ways it's it it, it helps you know and something like that i've watched the show since it started and the the things for me that, that you know you you each show or if it's not a show like it might be a video game or whatever they each have their own kind of feel to them you know it's like, like the lord of the rings and game of thrones and conan the barbarian and narnia and oz they all are kind of similar in that they're fantasy worlds but they are they have very different feels to them, very different styles. And I think that if you can capture that, that that's like one of the, the main things. And then, you know, trying to capture the characters and the voice of the characters. Um, right. So, when I, when I do it, you know, it's kind of, I started off college as a theater major. Switched very quickly when I realized I didn't want to spend my life acting. And uh, that I wanted to write. But in a lot of ways, I think of this like acting. You know, it's like it's my chance to I guess it's almost kind of like, you know, I'm paid to do mental cosplay kind of, I guess. I don't know. Right. uh, (laughs) So so I think of it like being like a a writer, a director, and an actor that, you know, I'm doing a version of Hamlet or I'm doing a version of this or, you know, I'm or literally it's like, you know, even though I'm writing a book and not a script for the show, you know, it's like that, too, where I'm trying to, you know, to work with a certain set of properties and do my very best. To make it fit right. with all the other stuff that's come before.
2: So, so do people think that you're the prophet, the guy, <laughs> the guy in Supernatural that wrote all the Supernatural nope. books?
1: Nobody <laughs> said that. Well, I've heard a couple people well, gonna, jokes like that. But I'm going to start that. there's a right lot right of us write Supernatural, so there would be a lot of prophets there.
0: <laughs> so, I like, gonna, I mean, like I'm, the
1: idea that in Supernatural, the God may be it might be God, you know, as a writer because right. it makes sense, you know, storyteller. Yeah.
2: Right. I'm going to, you know what, now that I think about it, well, first of all, I'm going to start that rumor. And second of all, now that I think about it, we should have totally marketed it that way. We could have been like, we're having the profit on the show. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: right.
1: <laughs> all
2: right. So the next thing oh, you're doing, you said, is another supernatural. Uh, this is your third third one?
1: Yeah, I've done two that are just, you know, regular stories. And then one I did was uh, it was a novel, short novel, but it was also a choose your own adventure. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was a lot of fun because I got to kill them off in all kinds of
2: ways. (laughs) Right. Oh, interesting. You know, because of the wrong
1: paths. And then because it's supernatural, I was able to make the Choose Your Own Adventure part actually be happening. You know, which is something you normally couldn't do. So I had a lot of fun with that one. Oh, you must have Nice. Yeah, it was great. It's called The Road's Not Taken. Nice.
2: I haven't done. I used to love those adventure books. That's great.
0: You've also written for one of my, ver- well, Supernatural is one of my very favorite, but one of my all-time favorite shows, Stargate SG-1. Is that one of your mm-hmm. favorites, too? Oh, I yeah,
1: that. I really I really enjoyed it, although I don't think I, I had tweaked to the idea that a lot of the fandom hated Jonas, because when I pitched an idea oh. to the editors. You oh, know, I, yes. I thought it, you know, I would have Jonas be one of the characters, I and mean, Daniel's in there, too. But I thought it would be interesting to... Yeah. To kind of show where he's at, and boy, a lot of fans were like, "Jonas, that's the worst thing ever." So
0: he just stand in, yeah. big <laughs> yep. Daniel Jackson. Yeah.
1: Right. So, yeah, I, I that that thought of it'd be now. interesting to try to give him some kind of uh-huh. dignity and maybe kind of make him an interesting character too. So, but I had fun writing that book. A lot of fun.
0: Oh, how fun! I must. Read do that.
2: you ever have people trying to persuade you to to do things a certain way to make certain things happen, especially in these, uh, you know, for these uh, really popular shows.
1: Well, I mean, the, the, whoever the IP holder is, you know, whoever is job, it is at a particular studio or a game company or whatever to say, you know, yes, this is what can happen in this world to these characters when they have the final say, um, there's a lot of stuff that you can talk to, you know, small things you can talk to with them. But um, the the novel I'm working on now for supernatural, the idea is that, you know, when there aren't that many gods left around and Sam and Dean killed a lot of the gods, that there's a human, a human will be born, that can actually create new ones. And this is where I bring oh. in my uh, my old uh, art, you know, comic book drawing thing. There's a young woman who is, she's an artist, and what's happening is the, the thing, creatures, the characters she's drawing are coming to life as gods. And then there's like a dozen of them, and then over a couple of days, they battle it out to see which one of them is strongest will actually become real oh, for good. Oh.
0: But yes. I thought it'd be
1: cool to have the gods have like modern spins. Like you'd have a god that would like be connected to technology somehow, and you know, one that might be connected to medicine. I was trying to think of things that we oh. venerate in the modern world. But you know, mm-hmm. the, the supernatural people were like, "No, that's too much like science fiction. So don't do that." Oh. So, so you know, so things like that happen. That even if I think it's yeah. a good idea, you know, and they also said that since. My novel set in the season that just ended, you know, it also had to feel like that season because they had a certain kind of a tone they try for each season, too.
0: Yeah. So oh, there's things like
1: that. And I did a book for Grimm, and the Grimm people, oh, yeah. you know, once I, I came up with my idea, and, you know, they looked at the outline, and they're like, oh, this is too much like magic. There's no magic in our show. Our show's all science. And if anybody's oh. ever watched Grimm, there's no way to explain everything that happens on that show without <laughs> some kind of magic.
0: It's impossible, right.
1: but that's okay. I came up with as many scientific, <laughs> or fake scientific reasons for stuff as I could, and they were happy. That was All a lot right. of fun to do anyway. Yeah. But. So, so yeah, it does it does happen. It does happen, but you know you just uh-huh. adjust to like, it. So
2: yeah,
0: yeah. That I, like, I, yeah. I, I found a lot of I found a lot of horror editors are afraid of science fiction. That they're afraid that you might put too much science in your story. Uh, <laughs> okay. Have you run into that?
1: Um, no, but I have run into the the uh, science fiction and fantasy publishers that are like, let's call this dark whatever, just don't call it horror. Mm-hmm. You know, just oh, yeah. because if we market it that way, it'll limit the audience. So I've run mm-hmm. into that.
2: Right, right.
1: Yeah.
2: No, so I was they would going prefer through... that
1: there actually be a little bit of science, because then you could at least say it's dark science fiction or something, mm-hmm. even if it really yeah. is ultimately a horror story.
2: Nice. Yeah. Uh, I was going through, I was going through some of your, your books and looking at your um, very vast, uh, you know, works and uh, the one that stands out to me the most, and I have not read this, but I would, I would really like to talk about it because it looks and sounds fascinating. Dream stalkers. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that's the second the series. Um, the first one is nights, night terrors. And the idea is that it's, it's a, It's a dark urban fantasy. It's more humorous and action oriented than horror, uh, although it is is on the dark side. But the idea is that the um, there are people that can actually bring their dreams, manifest them characters from their dreams into life. So they actually become alive. And these nightmares, they're always nightmares because nightmares are the most intense. So there's never any like a happy puppy. That comes, you know, into existence, and right. so there's an agency that whose job is to kind of make sure it's a little, you know, like uh, Men in Black, but with with uh, living nightmares instead of aliens. And so what they do is they try to make sure that these living nightmares behave themselves, and they have a a, a city in another dimension where they can move to and live there, and say, you know, or be imprisoned if they can't behave themselves. And so there's an organization called the Shadow Watch that. Uh, police is this. And the Shadow Watch officers, there's always one human, and then there's the nightmare that they have created because it works best to, to have a, a pair like that. And so my main character is partnered with uh, the the evil clown, the psychotic clown that she dreamed up when she was a teenager.
2: Nice. And
1: um, it's a lot of fun to have a completely anarchic <laughs> uh, nice. wrecking crew of a clown.
0: Uh, yeah. And uh, the
1: nightmares themselves, when uh, they're a little like werewolves for vampires, because when the sun comes up and the dream dimension is a little bit farther away from Earth, they become human for at least a time of the day. And so the nightmare clown, he's ah. like the completely opposite personality. You know, he's a very cultured, illiterate man, very, very restrained. And uh, so it's was, it was a, it a lot of fun to write.
2: Yeah. Now you can. Now everybody uh, can see why I'm so interested in this. I have to get. I have to get this book. Yeah. Somebody go get me, me that book to, right uh, now. <laughs> yeah,
0: we need it for christmas yes we do (laughs) um
2: this 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 while we're on the subject of dreams and 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 scary Mm. dreams um i i have to bring up a nightmare on elm street i you Mm. know this is i was really young when the movies came out and i think that uh Mm. they had a lot to do with shaping you know me and i am now here with you someone who knows a lot about that let's talk about a nightmare in elm street
0: and it's relation to lucid dreaming which i know a lot of yes yes <laughs> yeah. i remember when
1: you know i didn't see nightmare in elm street in the theater i rented it from a video store and you know i popped it into the mm-hmm. the old cassette it was like the size of a car and, yeah. you know I popped it into the, the, the player and i was watching mm-hmm. a small tv and just sitting you know sitting there and there was a scene where like freddie's in an alley in his arms, like the, the shadowy silhouette of him, the arms have extended. And then he starts yes. chasing this woman. And I, I turned it off. I'm like, that's it. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> something that was so, you know, I, I rarely do that. Uh, you know, you know that is... still. And I went back to watch it, but there was just something so primal about the first one. And, you know, a lot of the imagery of yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, I thought was really, really affecting. So when I got a chance to, you know, to do an original novel, you know, set in that world. I was going to, I thought it was great. This is another oh, yeah. example, though, of like how the, you know, you end up getting the studio telling you you can't do something. I'd come up with an idea. Yeah. My idea was that Freddie was gonna attack a woman, but she had like a, a dream catcher over her bed, and when he came mm-hmm. through the dream catcher, you know, he actually came. It, it like tore away from him the part of him that was like a dream master, and he came out as human, and so he like he runs from the house cuz he's so disoriented and for a while he's pretty excited to be human again you know to kind of just live life as a human yeah. but some but something mm-hmm. has moved in to his position as king of the dream realm and he he wants that power back but he also has to fight this thing which may or may not be you know his father in order to get his his throne mm-hmm. back and so we were waiting for the, the editor and I we were waiting for permission from new line cinema and the editor finally goes this is taking too long just start writing it which is always oh. a mistake. Uh. I found out.
0: <laughs> I wrote 60 pages
1: of this book, and New Line Cinema said you cannot do this because if Freddy Krueger is a human being, that brings up the specter of him having been a child molester, and we don't want to deal uh. with that anymore—at least right. at the time—because the movies at that point, it, you know, he'd become, you know, not exactly a, a hero or anything, but you know, he'd become an icon that you know kids would dress up as, and so they just try to ignore that part. And, you know, oh, in my yeah. outline, I, I, well, the way I was going to deal with it, I was going to have Freddie show up at a, you hang outside of a playground. And the kids wouldn't talk to him because in the years since he's been dead, they've all been schooled in stranger danger and stay away from people. And that was the only, not, I think he was mm-hmm. just going to leave them. And that was going to be the only thing I was going to make it very mild to reference it and have right. an explanation why he just doesn't go back to the space. But no, so I had to come up with a whole new idea and write it really, really fast. So I came up with an idea that, Freddie wanted to find kind of an, uh, a servant that would uh, uh, operate for him in the real world more because he was frustrated because he wasn't, people were starting to forget him and he wasn't able to affect the real world the way he used to. Right. So it's the story of him trying to turn a, a teenage boy, you know, into his protege, which is the name of the novel. Right. Nice.
2: Very Nice. So, what is your when you what is your writing schedule look like? Do you do this every day, several days a week?
1: It's probably several days a week. Like I said, the grading from my other job they they waxes and wanes, and there are just times when I have to do that for a couple days. Um, but in general, I'd say you know it, it, it's it's several days a week most of the week, definitely, nice. and you know at least for a few hours every day.
2: Nice. All right, so I, I have to ask I know it's not the most original question but you've been at this a long time and I have to ask what advice what tips would you give to aspiring writers
1: do you mean like craft tips or publishing tips or
2: uh, all of the above mm-hmm.
1: um, of okay well I would probably I would I would tell new writers and I tell them all well, I do since I teach creative writing but you know to to try not to write, based on all the stories that they've absorbed especially their tvs and tv shows and the movies because people absorb thousands upon thousands of hours of this stuff and that ends up becoming the experience that they draw on you know they, they they draw on their experience of media as opposed to their experience of life a lot of our experience of life now is all the same sort of media you know we're all on facebook we're all on this we're all watch this we all do that and so it's harder for them to write stories that you know aren't like those other stories that aren't just pale imitation um so you know to tell people to try you know to, to draw on their own experience and you know you don't have to go off and do you know i don't know you know travel the world and do odd jobs and all the the romantic stuff of the, you know, the image of the writer who's trying to live life and get ballot experience and all this. But just uh-huh. paying attention to, to you know, yourself and your friends and your family and life around you and try to, you know, base your fiction on that. Even if you're writing about, like, you know, a starport somewhere, I mean, you can still base the characters and the things that happen, you know, on your job, whatever it is right. you do. You work at Taco Bell and you can still, you know, be writing about the food place and the spaceport. and But right. it'll <laughs> come from a place that it's probably going to be more original because it's going to come from your own observations and your own feelings. It's not going to be just, you know, yeah. retreads of a whole bunch of media. So that's one of the biggest things that I tell people. I also tell them to be careful because so much of their media, it's just sound and sight. It's just visual. And so when people, in sound, so when people write, they write movement and they write, put sound in their stories. They don't describe anything else. Cause it does, they, because there are no smells to their media. There are no touches. You know, no kinesthetic oh, sense of when it, of all that's um Interesting. and so they have a terrible time with that and because their experience of media is always as a passive viewer or if they're playing a video game i mean they're still not literally inside the game doing anything they don't write with ah. an immersive point of view and so they write with a very distant very bland point of view and so they really it's really hard for them um i often show in my classes there's this video i can't remember the name of it but uh It's from the point of view, it's like an action video from the point of view of a super spy. And it's really, you know, so we see what he would see, you know, and uh, so I'll show them like, uh, I'll go to YouTube and I'll pick something from like um, the Bourne, one of the Bourne movies where we watch the characters do stuff. And then I show this and I say, you know, I show them that this is what you want to write, that you're inside this person's head, imagining you're that person, thinking and feeling and doing and making the decisions and everything that person does. And so, that, so those are the things I think I would probably like the three things. I think that's three that I, w- I, I would tell are, people.
2: That's, that's oh. really that's a really good and unique advice. I've never heard that. What about um, publishing? What what advice would you give on the business part?
1: Well, yeah, these days, I mean, things have changed so much. And there are so many options out there. But, but my advice would be to try it all. You know, try, and try it all at the same time for different projects. And see what right. you like. You know, do tradi- try mm-hmm. traditional publishing. Try small press publishing. Try self publishing. Um, try different venues. You know, anything that strikes you as fun and interesting. But do it all, and, and right. try to stay up on any kind of new developments because you don't. We don't know what's coming. Whatever whatever we have now is is going to be supplanted by something. Right. So yeah, I, I would um I would do that. I mean, at this point, I've never tried self publishing just because I I've got too much going on to try to learn it. But I try to, for myself, to actually do it. But I try to learn as much about it as I can, talk to people so I can at least talk to students about it. And, you know, I was actually just, um, there's a person I'm mentoring through the the Horror Writers Association. Her name's Amanda, so she's listening. Hi, Amanda. You know, and I just (laughs) answered some questions from her tonight, and that was one of them. She was, you know, she was saying, people saying you should do this or not do this in publishing. And I'm like, you should work toward your own publishing goals and nobody else's. and Try to do it all. Try to learn it all. because at this point, you know, there's no, and there's no one path anyway. Each of us makes our own path. We create it each time. So it's, it's not no, yeah, like totally. you tell people, this is how to be a doctor. This is how to be a lawyer. They can so. Exactly.
2: Well, and that's good advice. And I hope you're listening, Amanda. That's good advice. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right. So if, let's see, if you, is there anything that you've written that you wish you could go back and change? Is there anything that you're really unhappy about?
1: That's a really good question. So I'm sitting here in my office, and I have some of my books on the shelves, and I'm looking at them like, Is there <laughs> You're
2: looking at them. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's,
1: it's weird because sometimes you know, I don't go back and reread stuff very often, but every once in a while I'll get curious, and I will pick up a book, and you know I'll start reading something, and I usually don't think it's terrible. I usually think that, that it's it's better than I can write. I, I look at it and I think, surely an editor wrote this paragraph. They must have added it and I'll go back to the original <laughs> file and look at it and go, oh, "Look at that, I did write it that way." And then I think, <laughs> How did "I do that. I can't write that now." So, <laughs> oh. so I don't really have the, you know, the feeling of, you know, I wish that I hadn't done anything. I mean, there are times where, you know, you wish you had tried something else or that something had maybe uh, caught, you know, on fire a little bit more with people or Um, maybe things have worked out differently. Like, oh, it's too bad that editor left this publishing house because I really enjoyed working with her or, you know, who knows. Right. But no, I don't, there's nothing I would go back and, and redo. You know, I remember when Mm -hmm. I was one of the schools I taught for the years ago when I was teaching part time, uh, one of the professors had Margaret Atwood come in on like a a video conference, which was a big deal because it was like a super new thing back then. And I asked her how it went, and she said, uh, she didn't want to talk about The Handmaid's Tale, which is what they were reading in class. She said, all she wanted to talk about was her new book. Because the old book's all gone. It's, you know, you you guys just read it, but for her, who knows if she even remembers much of it. Right, right. My focus is usually on what I'm doing now and what's coming up, so.
0: That's an interesting thing because as writers we get asked about characters and half the time I don't remember anything people are telling right. me what happened in the story
1: and say oh yeah yep." it's, it's always whatever you're working on yep you know, and that's the way it, needs like it to be, to have- because otherwise you know you, there's no way you'd ever be able to do anything new. no the only thing I hate is if I, if I accidentally repeat something from a story that I didn't realize I did it just kind <laughs> of a theme or you know it could be something that it's not exactly yeah. the same, but it's similar enough that it's irritating me. Yeah. I haven't anybody noticed now, that yet, but I know. I, it's, I, it's, I just want to ask you
0: a, a question about your characters. Do you let them take over if they want to?
1: Um, Sort of. I mean, it's just, it, that doesn't seem to happen to me as much, but sometimes I'll have a character who I've planned to only be a short-term character, like in a book. I think they're going to die. Yeah. And it turns out they're so interesting, and they just have, more things will happen in the book and more interesting things will happen if they stick around. And so those characters Mm -hmm. end up not dying, but I choose not to kill them. You know, it's not like they they just do it on their own. So I usually don't have that kind of experience. A lot of people talk about it though.
0: Yeah. Do you ever have characters who insist on they're going to do something that kills them, even though you don't want them to?
2: No, we haven't
1: had that happen yet. Isn't
2: that interesting? It's so interesting. There are, there's there. It's and you know, I think that you get really great stories, you know, from both sides. But it's interesting because some writers, like uh, Tamara and I, both it's that it's it's that way. I can't. I just I, I, I research, and I start writing, and I I get to know the the story and the characters, of course. But I know that when I do it, it's going to kind of go a different direction. And usually, when I let it. It's fascinating what happens, and to some people, to to try to explain that, it's just it's very strange. But then you talk to other people who are really big on um, outlining and, and plots and planning, and that's totally uh, foreign to me. You know. Hmm. So do you do do you do extensive outlining?
1: No, it's I probably do like kind of like medium level outlining. Uh-huh. You know, I'll have I usually have an outline. Although that said, the novel I just finished, I purposely did without an outline just for the fun of it,
0: because I haven't done it that
1: way for a long time. But, you know, I'll still have, even then, I still have a general direction in my head of where things mm-hmm. want to go and a basic idea of, you know, of what the big yeah. sections are going to be. And sometimes when I get up to a scene, I'll, even if I have an outline for the whole thing, I'll actually outline the scene itself before I just right, right before I uh-huh. write it. And so, you know, I, yeah. yeah yeah, I probably outline more often than not. That's for sure, uh, in various ways.
0: Right. The outlining, um, outlining at the scene is interesting. I had we do do that. I had never thought about it that way.
2: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we we are getting short on time, and one I, I also want to ask you about uh, the the way of all flesh. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that for a minute. Um, what can you tell listeners about that?
1: Well, The Way of All Flesh is, is is my riff on the the zombie apocalypse scenario. Nice. One of the so there, so it takes place with you know in a world that is just has the zombie apocalypse, but this is a world that actually has all the movies and all the books and all the comics about a zombie apocalypse. So these people are like really trying to figure out why did this actually happen when it was something that you know was in popular entertainment, and so you have the survivors on one level. You also have the zombies, and the, the main character for the novel is a zombie who starts to come back to awareness, but his perception mm. of reality is very different from what the humans see. He sees humans as ivory-fleshed, red-eyed demons that move super fast that are trying right. to kill you know, him <laughs> and people like him, and he can't yeah. figure out why. And he's, uh, the other people that he sees that look like humans to him they don't seem to think right and they seem to want to eat each other and anybody they can get a hold of. <laughs> and he has a strange right. hunger he can't understand. And um and so the one of the survivors is his twin sister and they'd have a bit of a link so she realizes he's out there. Uh and he's come back to a certain level of awareness is why she can sense him. And so the novel runs on two tracks. There's Zombie who is trying to deal with this distorted view of reality he has and figure out what's going on. And then there are survivors who are trying to survive, but also try to, to find him. And thrown into this mix is a serial killer that is one of the survivors who can't kill anybody anymore because it's too easy to get caught. <laughs> you know, for a yeah. while he killed zombies and that was fun, but he's really bored with it. He's experimented on some of them because they stay alive and he can do whatever he wants to. them. But that's boring. And he also <laughs> resents them because they are so much better killers than he could ever be. There's so much bigger monsters than he can ever be. And so he's... You know, he has had kind of an existential crisis in a way, a very dark one. It's like you know, he's no longer like the the most feared monster by any means in this place.
0: Nice. So
1: those are the three kind of like the the three elements that the story focuses around. I very cool. It.
2: Very cool. That's yeah. a it's yeah, and it's a, a pretty interesting turn on it. It's so you know, mm-hmm. I, I there's so much cool zombie stuff coming out right now. It's pretty exciting actually. <laughs> Point of view. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it says here that you are enjoying Julian Flynn's books. Aren't they crazy? Yeah. They sure <laughs> are. <laughs> they sure <laughs> are.
1: <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, I've only read two of them so far. For, for a writer, I'm, I'm sure this doesn't happen to to just regular readers, but for a writer every once in a while I can hear the books creak because I can hear where, I can see kind of where she's really working hard to make this happen or that happen this way. Yeah. Or she's trying to hide this. And so it's kind of like being a magician and watching a better magician, but still seeing every once in a while, you're like, I know she did something here, but sometimes you can see what she does, sometimes not. But what's really neat about her books is that they're really the especially dark places. They're really yeah. uh, horror novels, and they're drenched, drenched in horror. Oh,
2: uh, oh, totally. They take
1: place in the the real world, and since nobody uses the word horror, I mean, the horror comes in the 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 way everything is described, the the way everything is viewed. You know, not just through mm-hmm. the the narrator's perception necessarily, but through the author's perception through the whole thing. So, yeah, they're really really good.
2: Yeah, it's it's an interesting. You know what? We need to get her on this show. <laughs> Yeah. Somebody get her on the phone right now, <laughs> <laughs> Jillian Flynn. If you're listening, and I know you are, <laughs> contact our producer. <laughs> no, she... <laughs> no. Yeah, it's good stuff, and it 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 brings up an interesting point. Um, I would like to ask you, what is your definition of horror? And you know, because now there is all this. I mean, I read stuff all the time, and I'm like, well, that's horror, and they don't call it horror, but it is. Yeah. How do you define horror?
1: Well, you know, I think horror relies on the kind of thing i was talking about earlier where there's this kind of violation or distortion of reality that's in a dark way and that is that threatens you know what we perceive of as the normal world and that can happen in a thriller too it doesn't have to happen with you know supernatural or fantastic yeah. things but i think that you know the horror you know and a lot of people define the word horror as this is just that you know the disbelief that this is happening you know this cannot be happening but it is yeah. and that that kind of you know realization and the and the ability to accept it and that kind of cognitive dissonance that happens with it I think is where where horror comes from you know this cannot be but it is
2: right interesting yeah interesting oh. yeah there's there's so many um spin-offs of it. I mean, you know I, I read a lot of you know urban fantasy that I would call horror uh you know even thrillers. it's it's interesting. it's uh I, all these new genres and subgenres it's uh what what kind of writer do you consider yourself? Would you call yourself a horror writer, a sci-fi writer, a dark fantasy writer?
1: Yeah you know fiction yeah i just I just think of myself as, as Tim to tell you the truth and I yeah. write the kind of stuff that I think's fun. But it's weird because people years ago started calling me a horror writer, and it's the thing that that they really like the idea that I write, too. Like, even people at work, they like this idea uh-huh. that, that, that I write horror. And it seems to be what people respond to the most. So, uh, But, you know, there are people that think of me as... They still remember fondly the, the books that I did for Wizards of the Coast, you know, tying into... Uh-huh. You know, the role-playing games. And so they think of me as a fantasy writer like that. And then there are people that think of me as an urban fantasy writer for, you know, things like the, the Night Terrors books. And then there are people that think of me, you know, as, as a horror writer. So I don't really know, you know, how I define myself really, but I like hanging out with the horror writers the most, I'll tell you that.
2: Yeah,
0: I know, right? They're such wonderful,
1: uh, they're such yeah. wonderful people. I mean,
0: it's...
1: <laughs> they're, they're gentle, just, too, to
0: get it all out yeah. on the page, Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've we've yep. I mean, yeah we've
2: experienced that, and we've heard it from you know we've experienced it firsthand, and we've we've heard it from you know way down the line. It's just yeah, horror yeah, writers yeah. are not scary everybody people up. at all.
1: <laughs> no, no. Yeah, my wife is not. She's paper. not into horror at all. And when she goes to the conventions with me, she just she was so surprised just how you know nice and caring and sweet everybody is, and it's like yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah
0: it's what great. are you? We- amused me when I used to do conventions a lot was the horror writers would all sit together near the fantasy writers and start talking and the fantasy writers would just be horrified they couldn't take (laughs) it and that that was so much fun (laughs) and then we (laughs) just separated him and draped his entrails all over the house and had a party (laughs) (laughs) it was was cool of us but we really enjoyed it
2: (laughs) well we are out of time unfortunately Um, but I just want to say that it has been a pleasure and an honor having you on, Tim. I'm a big fan. I've been reading you for years. I look forward to your future work. Uh, In closing, where can readers find more out
1: about you? Well, you know, they could just go to my website. It's just TimWagoner.com and Wagoner's W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R. I'm on Facebook. My profile is public. So anybody can friend or follow me if they want. So you can find me there too.
2: All right, great. great. Uh, Thank you again for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. You're welcome. You're awesome.
2: Yes, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And tune in next week. We have Charlene Harris of the Suki Stackhouse Setting Stuff. Uh, Okay, Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Tim, for being here. Uh, Until next week, we wish you haunted nights.
0: And sweet screams.